Robert Chapman, who was a 19th century pastor in Barnstable in England. Uh, he was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon and, and George Miller, names you may be familiar with. Uh, he was a man known for his love for Christ and for people. And the, the church that he pastored actually became known as the University of Love, where disciples of Christ, followers of Christ, really learned from Christ how to practice the love of Christ. And one day his friend, George Mueller, asked him, Would you not advise young Christians to do something for the Lord? To which which, uh, R.C. Chapman responded, No, I should advise them to do everything for the Lord. And so being a disciple of, of Christ demands that we do everything for Christ, that we give everything for Christ, and that we will actually follow everything that we learn from Christ. And today is our second message in this passage on the, in, in Matthew 10. So if you can turn there, please. Uh, really a compilation of, of teachings uh, about mission. And, and, and from that, we can draw these uh, traits, these hallmarks of a disciple of Christ in, in light of the mission that he has given them. Uh, and we see that in the end of chapter 9, uh, Jesus identified that uh, there are few workers. The, the workers in the harvest is only few and, and therefore uh, uh, commanded his people to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send workers into the harvest. And he then immediately acted on that prayer in the beginning of chapter 10, uh, called his 12 disciples and sent them, commissioned them to go and to preach uh, to the lost sheep of of. Israel, the household of Israel. Uh, we've also seen that really to be a disciple of Christ means that we are a learner, a student, or a pupil, or better understood, an apprentice, uh, learning from one's teacher. So an apprentice, a disciple, follows his teacher, his, 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 his person, his preaching, and his practice, uh, and seeks to become like his teacher. Uh, seek to learn from his words, seek to follow his ways, seek to study his teaching, imitating his life. And the highest achievement for a disciple really is to become like his master or like his teacher. And so last week we saw that a disciple of Christ is one who follows Christ, who follows Christ faithfully and who follows Christ fearlessly. Faithfully, we saw uh, just to follow Christ faithfully is to follow Him exclusively. Uh, that we follow Him, we follow His teachings and His life. We we don't mix and match. We 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 don't take a little bit from the world and a little bit for Christ, but we take Him for who He is and what He has said. Also, that we follow Him humbly is another trait of a faithful disciple. Humbly meaning that we actually obey what He teaches. We we submit ourselves to His will and His ways. And we also, as a faithful disciple, follow Him contently. Not seeking to make a name for ourselves, not seeking to exalt ourselves. Be quite content to live in obscurity if that's what the Lord has for us uh, uh, but spending all our energy, all our time is to exalt Christ. We also saw that a faithful disciple is one who follows him uh, fearlessly, knowing that the truth will triumph, that those who are in opposition to you, one day it will become known and, and they will stand before the Lord in judgment. And those who are faithful will likewise be known for all to see. Uh, also that we saw that... Um, we can follow Christ fearlessly because the soul matters more than the body. That we can, uh, the man can destroy the body, but oh, it's only God who can destroy both body and soul. And our soul, the disciple of Christ's soul, is secure in Christ. Also, we saw that we can follow Him fearlessly because we worship a sovereign God who cares for us. Uh, there's nothing that will befall us in this life that is, does not fall within the sovereign purposes and providential care of a loving Heavenly Father. 
And so this morning we'll come to our second hallmark or second trait of a disciple of Christ. And that is, uh, I, will, I will entitle it, to be a true disciple of Christ. A true disciple of Christ is someone who confesses Christ. And I say a true disciple of Christ because that's how Christ teaches us in this passage this morning. And a, a, a disciple... A true disciple who confesses Christ, confesses Him candidly, courageously, and conclusively. And so if you are in chapter 10 of Matthew, just let your eyes go to verse uh, 32. And I'll read from there. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be members of his household. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Let us pray. Father, we come to your word this morning. Lord, and ask that you will implant your word, the word of life, the bread of life, Lord, into hearts that you have prepared by your spirit. Lord, help us to receive. Lord, I pray that you would take away all distraction, that we would receive the life-giving word. Lord, that we would not only receive it, but Lord, that we would understand it that we would not only understand it, that we would believe it, that we would not only believe it, but that we would act upon it, that we would be doers of your word. And so, Lord, I pray for this morning, bless us in that, help us in that, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so, first of all, we see here that a true disciple of Christ is one who confesses Christ candidly, candidly or openly or publicly or unashamedly. Verse 32, therefore everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Therefore, of course, we need to ask ourselves, why is the therefore? Therefore, and it's based on what was said before, uh, a disciple of Christ is the one who should follow Christ faithfully and fearlessly, faithfully conforming to their master, his teaching, his, his practice, becoming like him, and fearlessly being committed to him and to perform his will in his way. And so being a faithful and fearless disciple for Christ will mean that you will face opposition. There will be those who would ridicule you. There would be those who would reject you. Those who slander you and subvert you. Those who criticize you and seek to cancel you. Those who oppose you and will persecute you because you follow Christ, before you confess Christ. Yet, despite of this, a true disciple will confess Christ candidly, openly, publicly. Confess really means to, to affirm, to, to acknowledge, to agree, to, to concede. Now, to confess Christ is to verbally affirm Christ, affirm His person, His preaching, and His practice. That He is the Son of God, our Savior, and our God. It is also to verbally state our identification with Him. That we are His disciples. We follow Him. We also declare our allegiance to Him verbally. And our faith in Him. It's a verbal declaration. Confession has the emphasis on, on, on speaking. But not only on speaking. 
also on living, that we are also to practically affirm Christ, practically identify with Him, practically show our allegiance to Christ, our faith in Him by the way we live, by our lives, how we conform our lives to the teaching of Christ, to His will and His ways, that we submit our will to His will, that we submit our ways to His ways. And so to confess Christ is done both in word and deed, both with lips and life, with orthodoxy and orthopraxy. As Romans 10, 9 tells us, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. So believing with your heart or in your heart that Christ lived, died and was uh, rose again produces in us a righteousness. An imputed righteousness first and foremost, but then also a practical righteousness as we conform our lives to Christ, as we fulfill uh, His will and His ways, His teaching, he, he who fulfilled all righteousness as we imitate Him. We also confess Him with our mouths. So we believe with our hearts, but we also confess Him with our mouths, which results in sanctification. That is, we speak, we confess, we verbally announce our faith in Him, for salvation. But again, it's far more. It is confessing your allegiance to Christ, affirming with your mouth your agreement with Him, with your words and your ways. You affirm Him, you affirm his, Him being the truth, who Christ is. You, you testify that His word is the truth, that what He says about life and death and righteousness and sin and judgment is true, that you are in His camp, then you will be saved. And we are to do this before men, publicly, openly, candidly. 1 John 4.15 tells us, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. And so a true disciple confesses Christ candidly, openly, unashamedly, publicly. That means a true disciple does not have a private faith. It doesn't, he doesn't have a hidden faith. He doesn't have one that, he, that nobody knows about. A true disciple has a confessing faith, a speaking faith, a living faith. A true disciple confesses Christ candidly. And that he does that when people are friendly and open and inviting and circumstances are favorable and easy. But he also does that and especially do that when people are opposed to Christ, that hostile to his words, scoffing at him. And when circumstances are difficult, and even dangerous. A true disciple will open his mouth or her mouth and speak for Christ, live for him, represent Christ, be an ambassador for Christ, in, despite the risk of ridicule and rejection, attack and abuse, opposition and persecution. Remember, a disciple is someone who follows his master's teaching and life, who stands for that, who stands on the word of Christ, his moral teaching, his moral life. And in doing so, confessing his teaching will bring hostility and animosity. It will bring opposition and persecution. They will seek to cancel you, meaning they will seek to silence you to silence your voice, to minimize your influence. And so confessing Christ with our lips and our life, our words and our deed, in things like marriage, regarding God's creative design for men and women, regarding sex, regarding all kinds of moral issues, confessing the 2,000 years old 
Christian orthodoxy based and built upon the teachings of Christ on these issues will invite persecution today. I mean, it all started a number of years. The first time we heard it, it started with a baker. A baker who refused to bake a cake for a gay wedding. And they were sued and, and people were trying to silence. People were trying to close them down for not wanting to do that. And for standing, confessing Christ. And even just recently, currently, there's this, this is an issue. A school in, in America, Louisville, Kentucky, who is openly Christian. And everybody who goes to that school I'm asked to sign that they know this is a Christian school that will teach Christian values. And the school homework assignment was... Uh, to write an essay on how you will persuade a gay friend not to be gay, but in a loving way, not focusing on the sin, but focusing on the good design of God for them. And of course, this was came into the news, and it's a big hoo-ha. They're trying to intimidate, they're trying to silence, they're trying to minimize the Christian influence, the, the confession of Christ of Christians in the public place today. And but this is not new. This has been going on for ages. Even in Revelations 2.13, we read of the church in Pergamum who was commended by Christ for their confession of Christ in the face of persecution. We read in verse 13 of chapter 2, Revelation, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the day of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And of course, Satan's throne is where he rules and we, where he reigns. So places and people that are really anti-God, anti-Christ, they would be under the rulership of the, the devil, Satan. They will oppose Christ's will and his ways. And here in Pergamum, it says that Satan had his uh, throne there. But not in the church of Pergamum. Not among the people of God in Pergamum. That was despite in living in this place where Satan reigned and they were opposed and persecuted, they confessed Christ and kept confessing the faith. That body of doctrine that defines what true Christianity is. Upholding uh, the teachings of Christ on all matters. Matters of salvation and matters of moral life. And so to confess Christ is to confess Him candidly, openly, publicly before men. Now, I think some reasonably for me to, reasonable for me to assume this, that this may raise concern in your heart. Um, if a true disciple is one who confesses Christ even in the face of opposition and persecution, where people will turn around and attack you for saying what Christ says about the moral issues in our day, perhaps you think, well, I, I was silent. I did not speak. I did not confess Christ at certain, before certain people, at certain places maybe a certain situation, does that mean that I am not a true disciple of Christ? Well, it, it may. It may. But it all depends on what you do after you've realized the sin that you've committed. The sin, the sin of denying Christ in that situation. And the answer is the same. Confess. Confess to Christ. Your failure, your sin, your lapse, your denial. For there is forgiveness. As 1 John 1.9 reminds us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then get up and sin no more. Be silent no more. Confess Him. I mean, we have, we have a number of examples of, of well-known men in Scripture who failed to confess Christ, who denied Christ, denied even knowing Him. Of course, the first person who comes to mind is, is Peter. Peter denied the Lord three times, calling down curses on himself that he did not know Christ until the crow of the cockerel bring, brought him to his senses, and it says he wept 
bitterly. He was remorseful. He was repentant. And the Lord forgave him and restored him. We think of a young man, Timothy, the, the disciple of Paul, whom he left in Ephesus to deal with that church. And, and that was a difficult church at that time. It was full of false teachers and their teaching. There was indifference, immodesty, ungodly women, unqualified leaders, apostasy, selfishness, gossiping, busybodies, disrespectful slaves, doctrinal disputes, and a love for money among the members in that church. And so Timothy faced much opposition, and he failed. He lapsed. He pulled back. He kept silent, so much so that his discipler, Paul, had to call him out and exhort him. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor Paul, his prisoner, but to join in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. A true disciple is not ashamed of Christ, nor his fellow disciples, but will confess Christ, confess Christ's teaching publicly. And so if you see a, 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 a fellow disciple being abused and attacked because he confessed Christ, stand next to them. Don't hide. Don't run. Confess Christ. And so a true disciple confesses Christ candidly, openly, publicly, though not perfectly. Because we all have laps. But when we do, we need to confess. And we need to then speak up, stand up, stand firm in the, in the strength of the Lord. To be faithful and to be fearless. And if you are, and when you do that, Christ will confess you before the Father in heaven. Speaking here of a future date, a date of judgment, the verbs here are pres a future tense rather. And on that day, there will be that day of judgment when you are called forward. And as you are called forward, Jesus would step up and says, Father, this one belongs to me. He confessed me before men, all men, any man, both friendly and hostile, both receptive and reviling. Revelation 3, 5 tells us, He who overcomes, that is, overcome fear, overcome intimidation, overcome opposition, persecution, will thus be clothed in white garments. I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before the angels. You see, that's why I say to confess Christ is a mark, is a trait of a true disciple. Because this is what Jesus says. That if you confess me before men, then I will confess you. And of course, don't misunderstand this. This is not work salvation. This is salvation at work. The merits of salvation is all of Christ. But the benefits of salvation are to those who follow Him, those who believe in Him, those who confess His name with their lips and with their lives. And so if you confess Christ before men, then He will confess you before the Father. But the reverse is also true. If you deny Christ before men, repeatedly, unrepentedly, then He will deny you before the Father in heaven. And on that day, the day of judgment, when you will be called forward, Christ will be silent. And you will say, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not cast out demons in your name? Did I not perform all these miracles in your name? And he would say to you, depart from me, for I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. They professed to know Christ with their lips, but not with their lives. 
said, you are who uh, did these things. You did these things, those who preach and did all kinds of works for Christ while their hearts are far from Him. Christ would say, you did this not for me, but for yourself. Not for my fame, but for your glory. Satisfying your passions and your pleasures. And of course, we have examples of that. Judas Iscariot being one disciple of Christ who professed Him, who even did many miracles. He was sent out with the other, other disciples before he betrayed Christ. He was not willing to confess Him publicly. And when he saw things were going in the opposite direction of what he would hope or desire, he betrayed Christ for money. Demas, another one, a fellow worker of Paul. When Paul was in prison, we read in Second Timothy 4.10 that Demas deserted him, having loved this world more. And the Apostle John writes in 1 John 2.23, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son also has the Father. So a true disciple confesses Christ candidly, openly, publicly, unashamedly. And a true disciple also confesses Christ courageously, bravely, resolutely, steadfastly. Verse 34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. That's a pretty unsettling statement, a pretty alarming statement. Was Jesus not the one who was prophesied to be the Prince of Peace back in Isaiah 9-6? They will set up His government of righteousness and justice and peace. Did not the angels at His birth cried out, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among men. That Jesus not taught in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Did He not say to His disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives I, do I give to you. But do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. In John fourteen twenty seven. See, all those verses are true. All those verses are true for those who believe in Christ, for those who have trusted in Him, who have submitted to Him, who are His disciples, who are following Him. And Jesus borrowed peace to them, having making a, a reconciliation through His death on the cross. Because they are justified because of what He has done, they have peace with God, we read in Romans 5.1. There is peace between Jew and Gentile, Ephesians 2.14. And there is peace because Christ has reconciled all things to Himself through His blood shed on the cross. And so ultimately, His peace is there for those who believe in Him now, uh, peace in our hearts. But ultimately, that peace will extend to all of the earth when He comes again and, and establish His kingdom at His second, not establishly, consummate His kingdom at His second coming. But until then, until then, there will be conflict. Until then, there will be strife, animosity, hostility, opposition, persecution. And people, the more you know the Bible and the more you stand in the Bible, the more conflict you will experience. But until then, until that big day, there will, there will be peace for those who believe, but also tribulation for those who confess their faith in Christ, their allegiance to Christ, and conform their ways to His ways and their will to His will. John 16, 33, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. It's as we are in Christ that we have peace. But in the world, while we live in this world, you have tribulations. But take courage, I have overcome the world. Back in Matthew 10, verse 34, Jesus says He did not come to bring peace, but a sword. A sword here is used metaphorically, not literally. 
the Jews often use the word sword to describe war or conflict, strife or, or division. And that's its meaning here, given the context of, of this passage, but also a parallel verse in Luke 12:51. It says, do not, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. And that's what the sword means here. It means God brings division. The moment you confess faith in Christ, the moment you confess Him before men, you are entering into a war. You did not start the war. The war was started centuries ago by God, declared war on Satan in the Garden of Eden after the fall, when He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. People, the world is divided in two groups. There are the children of God and the children of Satan. There are those who are part of the kingdom of heaven and those who are part of the kingdom of darkness. When it comes to spiritual matters, there is no neutrality. There's no middle. You're either in the one or in the other camp. And Jesus say here, I came because I am the dividing line. I am like a sword that cuts to separate and divide between people. Between those who accept Him and those who don't. Between those who, who set Him as the truth and those who reject Him as the truth. For those who follow His way and those who follow their own way. For those who, who follow or have life in Him and those who don't have life in Him. Christ brought a sword. His word, His ways, His character, His conduct, His mission, His ministry is like a sword. It cuts, it divides, it separates. So don't think I came to bring peace but a sword. Jesus said, when you confess me, you enter the battlefield. You invite conflict. You bring division into the world you live in, into the company you keep, into the family you love. Not because you want to or seek it or enjoy it, but because you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of his beloved son. And when you are there, then those who are in darkness, they hate the light. And they seek seeking to snuff out the light because it exposed their dark deeds. John 3.19 says, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Jesus is saying, if you think that being his disciple, confessing him, will make your life easy, happy, and peaceful, you are sorely mistaken. Your confession will invite conflict. It will invite strife. It will invite division. That is why we need to tell people to count the costs. To count the costs at following Christ. To count the costs of confessing Christ as their Lord and their Savior. Jesus, with His first coming, came not to bring peace, but to divide the world between those who believe in Him and those who denounce Him, those who submit to Him and those who reject and rebel against Him, those who confess Him before men and those who deny Him before men. And that division cuts right through to even the deepest, most personal relationships that we can have on earth, and that is in the family. Verse 35 says, For I came to set man against his father and uh, daughter against the mother and daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law. Because of Christ, because his disciples will confess him before their families, their deepest and dearest relationships of love and respect, that will be rendered asunder, that will be torn apart. 
The Bible teaches that the Father is the head of the house and worthy of honor and respect and love. But the Son will set himself up against his Father, will rebel against his Father because of this, because of Christ. Same with mothers and daughters. Mothers disciple their, their daughters in the care and nurture of their family, the raising of children. They have a close, loving bond between them. But Christ, when Christ comes in and one is saved and the other is not, he brings separation, he brings division. The daughter will rise up against the mother. The same with mother, daughter-in-law and mother-in-law. In those days when a daughter um, get married, she moves into her husband's family. So now her closest relationship is with her mother-in-law. And so when that relationship is rendered asunder by Christ, that person can be very, very lonely in that family. But not even, not only there, though not mentioned in our text here, even in marital relationships, if, if you are married and, 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 and then one came to salvation and the other not, that brings conflict, that brings separation. You cannot share the life together as God intended it because you don't share the spiritual aspect of your relationships. And so here, you see, you may experience division in your family, and some of you actually have. When you confess Christ with your lips and with your life, it brought division, it brought separation, conflict, strife in your relationship with your family, even friends. This reminds me of a story that I read of a young lady, about uni student age, who was graciously rescued by Christ. And she was full of love for Christ and zeal for Him. She was a true disciple of Christ, and so she confesses Christ to her family, told them about who He is and what He has done and what He calls them to do. And as she confessed Christ to her father, He cut her off completely. He refused to speak to her. When she would call home, he would, and he would pick up the phone. When he hear her voice, he would put the phone down. And she was, of course, sad and perplexed. She said, I would have thought he would be happy that I was not an alcoholic, that I was not a drug addict, that I was not a prostitute or criminal. But here I am. I've never known such joy in my life. And he won't talk to me. And she came understand, to understand that confessing Christ brings division. Even in the closest of family members. Christ brings a sword. He divides, he separates the world into two. Those who are for him and those who are against him. Verse 36 says, And a man's enemies will be members of his household. And we have examples of this from shortly after the fall, where those who believed God and followed His will and His ways, and those who don't, uh, were in conflict with one another. Of course, the first one that comes to mind is Cain and Abel. 1 John 3.12 says, Cain, who was of the evil one, slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. When you confess Christ with your lips and your life, it brings opposition. Other examples would be Esau and Jacob and Absalom and David and even Jesus and his family initially. And so therefore, a true disciple has to confess Christ courageously, bravely, at great cost. It takes courage to confess Christ, to stand for Him, to stand in Him, to stand with Him when your family rejects you. I mean, this was very pertinent in the early church for those who believed in Christ. Their families and communities almost immediately ostracized them. Uh, in those days, uh, those whom the Lord saved, 
um, was considered enemies, were apostates. But even today, in some religions like Islam and Hinduism, those who confess Christ are often met with ostracism and even death for their confession. But a true disciple confesses Christ courageously. And thirdly, a true disciple confesses Christ conclusively. That is, decisively, wholeheartedly, preeminently, compellingly. A true disciple has counted the cost and is willing to pay the price to bear the name Christian, to known Christ, or more importantly, to be known by Christ. Verse 37, He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Disciple that is true disciple that has confessed Christ conclusively as one who has made up his mind to love Christ foremost, supreme, above all others. Now, scripture are very, scriptures are very clear that our love and devotion to our families is a cardinal Christian duty. We are called to love our families. We are called to obey and honor our parents. We are called to love and care for one another, to, to provide for one another's needs. And even in 1 Timothy 5, 5 tells us that if we do not do that, we are worse than an unbeliever. So we need to care for our family. However, love for our family must be subservient to our love for Christ. Jesus insists that we love Him foremost. And when loyalty to family brings us in conflict with loyalty to Christ, then His claims must be first. I mean, earlier in, in this passage, earlier in Matthew, Matthew 8, we, we read about a disciple who wanted to follow Jesus and said, Allow me to first go and bury my father, then I will come and follow you. And what we remember, what we said then, this is not, this was not literal. His father did not die. It was a known expression that he will come and follow you, but there's a few other things more personally important to me than to following you at this moment, Christ. He first wanted to secure himself and his family, maybe financially before he will devote himself to following Christ. Such a disciple is not worthy of Christ. And Jesus is reminding us in this passage that to know Christ, to belong to Christ, to love Christ and be loved by Him, to follow Him is a profound privilege. A privilege of inestimable value. No other relationship must enjoy higher priority or a superior allegiance. Even the relationship of, of our, with our family must not be chief over our confession of Christ. A true disciple confesses Christ conclusively, loving Christ foremostly, following Christ decisively, belong to Christ wholeheartedly. No other loving obligation is more binding than that. And when a choice has to be made between parent and Christ, Christ must come foremost, above the parent's wishes. And when a choice has to be made between a child and Christ, Christ will and His ways must be our chief consideration. His cause must be chief, foremost, 
preeminent. And so a true disciple of Christ confesses him conclusively, compelled by a deep love that Christ has for us and captivated by the conviction that Christ's claims on our lives is preeminent. He saved us by sacrificing His own life, producing in His disciple a willingness to make the utmost sacrifice for the cause of Christ, whether that be fortune, fame, or even family. But those who deny Christ, Deny Christ their utmost loyalty, their total devotion, their chief priority, their first love, their foremost love. Jesus said, is not worthy of Him. Jesus said, such a one is not worthy to belong to Him, to bear His name, to be confessed by Him before the Father in heaven. And people, this can bring us to, to really heart-wrenching decisions, harrowing decisions, haunting decisions. But our confession of Christ must be foremost, preeminent. You all know of John Bunyan, the English Puritan preacher of the 17th century, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. He was arrested for preaching without a license, breaking the religious act of 1592, which commanded that only those with a license are allowed to preach. And of course, the license was issued by the state. And he was arrested because he refused to stop preaching. And so in court... He stood firm on his confession and he says, If you release me today, then I will preach tomorrow. Which led to him being imprisoned for 12 years. He could have been released at any of those days during that 12-year period if he would just agree not to preach. Not to confess Christ before men. And of course, the Lord has worked a blessing through that because in that time he wrote Pilgrim's Progress and a number of other things which has blessed the church up to this day. But the cost was high. For he was convicted that he must preach. God called him to preach, to confess Christ. And he, it's recorded for us how, how he wrestled with this decision. This Decision not to deny Christ weighed heavily upon him. He knew that if he went to prison, his family would suffer. Who would take care of his wife? Who would take care of his children? One of them had six children. One of them was blind. And so he committed his family to the sovereign and providential care of his heavenly father and chose to stand, to confess Christ, not to deny Him. He said, how can I close my mouth when God has called me to preach? And it says that he found encouragement and comfort in passages like 2 Corinthians 1.9. He says, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And passages like ours this morning. But yet it was incredibly difficult for him. He wrote, and I quote, The parting with my wife and poor children had often been to me in this place as the pulling of flesh from my bones. And that not only because I am somewhat too fond of these great mercies, I love the way they, <laughs> they wrote in those days, but also because I should have often brought to my mind the many hardships Miseries and wants that my poor family was like to meet with, should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child, who lay nearer my heart than all I have besides. Oh, the thought of the hardship I thought my blind one might go under would break my heart to pieces. 
poor child, I thought, ah, what sorrow are there to suffer for your portion in this world? Thou must be beaten, must beg, suffer hunger, cold, nakedness, and a thousand calamities. Thou I cannot, though I cannot now endure, the wind should blow upon thee. But yet, recalling myself, thought I, I must venture all with God. Though it goes to the quick to leave you. Oh, I saw in this condition, I was a man who was pulling down his house upon his head, upon the head of his wife and his children. Yet though I must do it, I must do it. Bunyan was a true disciple who confessed Christ conclusively, compellingly, chiefly, above all other loves and loyalties and obligations. And to confess Christ con conclusively requires that we love Christ more than we love our own families. And if we do not love Christ more than our own families, then we are not worthy of Him. That's an incredible high demand. Perhaps a bit extreme, especially viewed from our purchase in time and history, where some level of commitment is tolerated, Christian commitment is tolerated in our society. But many before us had to make this decision, love family or love Christ. Confess Christ or deny Christ. But Jesus did not stop there. He continued and said that those who do not love Him more than their own lives are not worthy of Him. And so to confess Christ conclusively means that we must love Him more than we love our own lives. Verse 38, And he who does not take his cross, take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Taking up your cross or carrying your cross, we use that expression today, maybe speaking of a particular burden that we may have, uh, some difficulty that we have to carry, maybe a, a physical ailment, uh, arthritis or an irritable bowel or whatever it may be, or even a mental struggle, maybe anxiety or depression. That is my cross that I have to, to bear. Or, or even a, a, a personal relationship, a, a wayward child or a lazy husband or a bossy wife. Uh, that is my, that's my cross that I need to, to carry. That, of course, is no reflection about. Uh, uh, but uh, these burdens, these crosses that we stoically bear are not the cross that Christ is referring to here. The Christ here, in those days, in Jesus' days, when you saw a man carrying his cross, you understood that he was a dead man walking. That he was on a one-way ticket. He's not coming back from where he's going. In those days, if you were condemned to be crucified, you had to carry the cross beam of, of your cross. And taking up your cross really st stood for the ultimate renunciation of all and, and any claim to life that you may have. Those who take up their cross was dead. Dead to their old life. Dead to themselves. They were as if they were already dead. And that is what Jesus demands here. Everyone who follows Him, everyone who confesses Him, bear His name, claim to be His disciple, must renounce Himself, must die to self. And this dying is, of course, every day we die to self in this life, but also ultimately physically, that God may require us to die physically for our confession of Him. The disciple understood that to take up your cross meant abandoning yourself to the Lordship of Christ. It meant that our love for Christ must override the natural love we have for family and the natural instinct to preserve our own lives. 
the one who is willing to live this way, the one who is actually living this way, he is the one, she is the one who is worthy of Christ Jesus. He is the one and she is the one whom Christ will claim as his own on that great and awesome day of judgment. And each will be judged by the deeds that they've done, whether it is good or evil. How they have responded to the amazing grace God showed them in Christ. Jesus continues for, he adds another verse, verse 39, a verse about kingdom wisdom, seemingly paradoxical wisdom, but divine wisdom. Verse 39 said, He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. If you give your life over to Jesus, if you confess with your lips and your life, with your word and your deed, He's right over you. Then you will in return find your life because He will give you your life. And So this means that when you are faced with a choice between Christ and self, between Christ's interests and your own interests, And you choose your own interest thinking that you will secure for yourself a better life, a happier life, a more fulfilled life here and now. You will be bitterly disappointed. Because Jesus said you will lose your life rather than gain anything. You will lose the happiness that you seek, the significance that you crave, the fulfillment that you long for. Your life will shrink and shrivel instead of thrive and flourish. But when confronted with a choice between the interests of Christ and the interests of self, and you choose Christ, loyalty to Christ, willingly pay the price, willingly to sacrifice that which the world values and esteem, willing to pay the ultimate price of giving your life, your very life, then Jesus says, you will find life. It will, life will be given to you. A fruitful, useful life for Him and His kingdom. A joyful life, a life in abundance. In this life and then on that great and glorious day, you will hear the words, well done. He will confess you before the Father. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. You see, a true disciple of Christ confesses Christ conclusively, compellingly, chiefly. Loving Him more than family. Loving Him more than your own life. Do we love Him that way? One commentator puts it this way. Do you love death for Christ's sake more than life for your own sake? And the missionary Jim Elliot says, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And so today, this, these words of Jesus calls us not to do something for Him, but to do everything for Him. Because a true disciple confesses Christ candidly, courageously, and conclusively. Let me pray for us. Father, when we hear these words, we are stunned, we are confronted, Lord, with our own weakness, Lord, our own failings, our own sin, Lord, so often that we have not confessed you as we ought to. We have not put you first as we should, Lord. And Lord, it grieves us that you who withheld nothing from us, but gave your very life so that we may have life, 
that we still so often cling to our own will, our own ways. We deny you, Lord. Forgive us for that. And Lord, help us to resolve in our hearts to confess you before men publicly, courageously, and conclusively. In Jesus' name, amen.